was great. Last service, we had a father baptize a daughter and a husband baptize a wife. So it's been a great day of celebration already. Amen. Romans chapter 6, please open your Bibles and put your finger in there for a moment. Rhetorical question. 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, there was a crucifixion that took place. On that hill, don't answer, but on that hill, how many were crucified? You read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, piece together the events, remember the pictures that are probably blazoned in your mind of the rock-strewn hill and the three crosses, Christ in the center, a thief on either side. And we would say from that there were three crucified on that day. Then if we would read beyond the Gospels, we would come to the letters, the letters such as Paul's letters, and the letter that he wrote to the church of Galatia. He says in the second chapter of that letter, I have been crucified with Christ. So then it must be four, Jesus and the two thieves and Paul. But then if we continue reading in the New Testament and even studying what we have been studying for weeks now from Romans 5.12 down to Romans 6.11, the reality is that every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified with Christ. That has been true since Christianity began up to this present day and will be true until history ends. And so there on that hill outside of Jerusalem, there were untold millions that were crucified with Christ. I was one of those. If you're a follower of Christ, you were one of those. And you see, that is what Paul has been driving home over and over again. That's what he has been redundantly repeating, prolifically stating time and time again in Romans 5.11 down through Romans 6.12. He's been talking about our union with Christ as believers. That when we put our faith in Christ, we were baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that baptism, that was a uniting with Christ. So that, here's the summary statement of that doctrine of our union with Christ, that what happened to Christ happened to us. Meaning, 
that when Christ died to sin once and for all, we died to sin as followers of Christ once and for all. That's what the doctrine of the union, our union with Christ teaches. Paul made that very vivid by telling us about another union. In Romans chapter 5, he talked about our union as humans with Adam, our first federal head, that we were so directly and completely and profoundly united to Adam that when Adam sinned in the garden, we sinned. We actually sinned in Adam. And because of that, we were condemned through that sin and convicted and judged as guilty and were born into this world under the curse because of that union. But all of that was intended to just set up the illustration so that he could give the real truth of the passage, and that is to show that there is another union, there's another federal head, Jesus Christ, a second and only a second. You are either under the federal head of Adam or you are under the federal head of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are either united to Adam and under his condemnation and sin and guilt, or you are under the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him, and what is true of him if you are united is true of you. Specifically stated, you have died to sin. And you have been risen to new life. That is where Paul comes to in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, as he wraps up this doctrinal section, setting in place all of the incredible truth of the believer's union. From 5.12 down to 6.11, he has been putting that doctrine in place piece by piece, and he comes to Romans 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 11, and he gives this great conclusion statement. This is where we left off last time we looked into Romans 6, he said, so you also, meaning, so you also just like Christ, just like the things I have been saying about Christ and his death to sin and his resurrection to new life, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. God inspired Paul to say that if you're a believer, he wants you to consider. He wants you to reckon. He wants you to, here's what it means literally, he wants you to count it as true. Really true. Actually true. Not symbolically true. Not that Christ just did something to deal with your sin on the cross, but when you put your faith in him, you died there with him. Your, his death to sin was your death to sin. His death to sin once and for all. What does that mean? It means this. 
that Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven, that he stepped down into the realm of humanity. He stepped into a relationship to sin that he had never had. He had lived as co-equal, co-eternal, second member of the Trinity for all of eternity. But when he stepped into the flesh and joined his divine nature with a human nature, he took on all of humanity and he put himself in the realm where sin reigned so that he grew up living under the rule of sin, under the dominion of sin. The lawgiver subjected himself to the law. And then he willingly worked with his father to orchestrate his own death, and he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin that the law demanded, folks. And when he died, here's what happened. This temporary relationship that he was within sin, that he had stepped into for a period of time, that was ended once and forever, never to be returned to again. It was just a moment in time that he entered into this new dimension where sin ruled and sin reigned under sin's dominion and under the curse of the law. But when he died, he stepped back out of that. When he resurrected from the dead, he went back to his former realm where sin does not reign or rule, where sin does not have dominion. And the truth of what Paul is teaching is this. If you're a believer, that's your story. If you're a believer, you died with Christ and your relationship to sin ended. It's no longer what it was. You're no longer, you as a being, as a personhood, are no longer living where sin rules under sin's dominion and sin's slavery. You have a brand new existence, a brand new citizenship, a brand new reality. Your whole identity is totally and radically changed. And Paul says, as he ends this doctrinal section, 511, 512 to 611, in fact, really, Romans 1.1 up to Romans 6.11, it's been nonstop doctrine. And he comes to Romans 6.11, and he is finally now ready to step into the practical application now that the doctrine has been put in place. And he says... Based upon the truth of who you are, having been baptized into, united into the Lord Jesus Christ, here is the only proper response. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Look, consider, verse 11, reckon, literally, count it as true. What God says is true, that you died to sin when you were united with Christ. You say, Pastor Brad, I don't feel like I died to sin. I mean, I don't really ever feel like I died to sin. What does your feelings have to do with it? This is not to be something based upon subjective truth that rides the tide of your emotions in and out as they change. The point being made here is that you are to ground it on what God has said about you. You are to consider, you are to reckon, you are to take as objective reality that God has said it to be true if you put your faith in Christ and that makes it true. God's declaration of it makes it absolutely unmovable and unshakable that if you are united to Christ, you have died to sin. Regardless of what you feel like, it is who you are. Now what I want to do is I want to put the outline just possibly to help just organize the thoughts here and understanding. I want to give a common outline that I use regularly. I want to tell you the what, the so what, and the now what. The what asks the question, what does the text say? The so what asks the question, what does the text mean? The now what asks the question, what must I now do based upon the truth? So here's the what. What does the text say? We're going to look at verses 12 and the first half of verse 13 today. And let me just begin by pointing out what the text says by highlighting what the text does not say. Because what it does not say communicates a really vital, vital truth. Paul says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Why did Paul not write, or maybe a different way to ask the question is, would it made, have made any difference if Paul would have said it like this? Let not sin therefore reign in you so that you obey its passions. Instead of writing, as the ESV translates it, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. 
so that you obey its passions. Is there really a critical difference between the word you and the word mortal body, or the phrase mortal body? Is that just a coincidence or is there something actually very intentional there? And I want to tell you that there's something very intentional here. Here it is. If Paul would have said, let not sin therefore reign in you, in your person, in your personhood, what Paul would have been doing is that he would have taken Romans chapter 5 verse 12 all the way down to Romans chapter 6 verse 11 and just crumpled it all up, the manuscript, and threw it in the trash. Because what he has been saying through all of that doctrine is that's not you anymore. You're a brand new person. You don't live in that relationship to sin anymore. You are not in sin's realm, under sin's rule, living under the dominion of sin and the slavery of sin as a person. You're in an entirely different reality now. You are not defined by that anymore, nor are you there anymore, nor will you ever be there anymore because Christ died to sin once and for all, and he is done with that relationship to sin. And as a believer, that's your reality as well if you're united to Christ. And if he would have come then in verse 12 and said, now, believer, don't let sin reign in you, he would have been totally contradicting himself. But what he says further highlights that the proper interpretation of that past chapter is exactly what Paul has been teaching us, is that we are made brand new. We are totally and forever removed from that relationship to sin that we had when we were in Adam. And the way that he validated that and kept the teaching consistent is that he used the words mortal body instead of us. Instead of you. What does he mean by the word or the phrase mortal body? He is talking about, in part, this physical frame that you see right here. This tangible thing of flesh and bone. The organs, the members or instruments of my body, like my eyes and my hands and my legs. But not just those external things, but also things like the mind and the thoughts and imaginations that go into that. Also, things that, like the emotions through which animate and I act out and live my life, all of those things are a part of this body here, this mortal body, and the truth that we touched on a couple of weeks ago when we left Romans 6.11, the truth is this. When you are united to Christ, you have a brand new soul and spirit. You are made brand new with a brand new identity. But the one vestige that you still retain is your mortal body. 
you have not shed that yet. And your mortal body is still a body plagued with sin. It's still the reality as a part of not who you are as a person, but just the clothing within which you are temporarily existing. I want to show you one more statement in verse 13 that further illustrates, validates that truth, again by an omission. In verse 13, Paul restates it in more detail, what he's just said in verse 12, and he gives a positive and a negative side. But what I want you to see is that what he says on the negative is not the same way he says it on the positive side. He omits something in the negative. Listen to it. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Did you hear the difference? Let me do it again and highlight it more clearly. Do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. In the first instance, he comes back to this idea of the mortal body. And he says, don't present the members of your mortal body to sin. But then he goes to the positive side and he says, but what you do need to do is present yourself, your real person, to God as an instrument of righteousness. Now, why would he not say, don't present yourselves to sin? Because you can't. If you're a believer, you don't have that identity anymore. It is impossible for you to do that, to present yourself to sin. Because you have an entirely new, forever changed, never going to enter into again relationship. A brand new existence. And so... By what Paul does not say, it is becoming very clear what he means. He is talking about this mortal, physical body, external, tangible, and the things like the mind and the imagination. And he's telling us that that mortal body your mind and your imaginations, they can and still are a place where sin dwells, where sin remains. Let's go to the so what, and I'll make that even more clear. The so what asks the question, what does this mean? I'm going to give you three bullet points under here if you want to write these down in your notes. What does this mean? Implications, deductions to draw from what he's saying here in 12 and 13. And here's number one. It's just that sin is still present in the believer's mortal body. Sin is still present in the believer's mortal body. He's not talking about your spirit and soul. He's not talking about your person. 
because you are already seated with God in the heavenly realms. You are already there. But in the physical realm, connected to this mortal body, in this sinful world, sin still remains, even in the believer's life in the mortal body. And uh, we all would say, well, you're not telling me anything. I can believe it. If you've been a believer for more than three and a half seconds, you know that. Here's a point I want to make here. When the Bible talks about mortality or this body, there is always a connection made between mortality and corruption. Let me say that again, then I'll try to unpack that a little bit. Biblically speaking, there is always a connection made between mortality and corruption. It says in the New Testament, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. These bodies are called corruptible, perishable. And Paul writes that what has to happen is that we have to shed these mortal bodies, these perishable bodies, and we have to put on the imperishable to go to heaven. I'll just read it in verses 12, or actually in verses, uh, didn't write it down, I thought I could pull it down from memory, that we are to, that one day we are going to need to shed this perishable body of corruption and put on the imperishable. I'm sorry I can't give you the reference right now, you come to me after church and I'll do that. He even says that those that are still alive when Christ returns, that they're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Why do they need to be changed? Because they are mortal. They're living in a mortal body. They're living in a, peri in a perishable body. And that needs to be transformed into an immortal, imperishable body in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, one of the greatest teachings about what's going to take place with us on the final day, whether we are alive when Christ comes or are already in the grave, what's going to happen is that we are going to be given as believers a glorified body. Listen, Scripture says, like Jesus' glorified body. We are going to put on immortality and an imperishable body and leave this moral corrupt thing behind. And what we're going to put on is going to be like the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be our eternal reality. point here on this side of heaven is that as long as we are living in this mortal body, there's a connection between mortality and corruption. 
sin remains in the body. Now, why am I making the point so hard that you, if you have been a believer for any time at all, are already aware of? I'm making that point so I can draw a couple of implications that become really a part of the so what, what must I now do? The first implication is this, that sanctification, let me define that in layman's terms. Sanctification is your spiritual growth. It is you becoming more like Christ in what you think and what you say. You becoming more and more holy, another way to say that. That sanctification is not a gift like salvation. Now, before you make any judgments on that, just hang tight with me for a minute here. You see, salvation happens in a moment in time. In the Greek, in the aorist tense of the verb, it is something that happens at one moment. It happens fully in that moment. It is completed in that moment, and it will never happen again after that moment because it is secured and forever. That's not how sanctification works. Sanctification is not a one moment in time. Sanctification is a process that happens over time. And it needs to happen over time because we still have this mortal body that we are connected to a mortal body of corruption. The second implication is that not only is sanctification different than the gift of salvation in that it's an ongoing process, the second implication is that sanctification requires our diligent effort. Salvation is none of you. And if you try to make it any of you, you forfeit all of it. But sanctification is the work of God that you are to participate in with Him. We've been looking at this verse several times uh, in the last several months, but I'm going to give it to you again. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to His good purpose. You see, God is doing this work in you. He is working salvation in you, and He is giving you desire and will, but you have to work it out. You are to participate and partner with God in the process of salvation. Now, the reason I am bringing this out is that there are some who teach sanctification like this. All you have to do is let go and let God. That your striving in your effort actually hinder the process and get you nowhere. You just need to be still and let God do what God does. But all over in Scripture... There is the encouragement, the exhortation, the commands that you are to go for it. That you are to 
work it out. You're to give it your best effort. You're to participate with God in what He is doing. So the first point here is that sin still remains in the believer's mortal body. Here's the second point. Sin wants to reign in the believer's mortal body. It doesn't just remain and then remain satisfied with remaining. It wants to reign. Folks, we need to approach this idea of sanctification as a battle. Not as a game, not as a walk in the park, not as a kind of on and off as I have time to address it and give it some attention, responsibility. But we need to realize that every single day when we get up this day, we are facing a battle. And the reason that we're facing a battle is because we still have this mortal, corruptible body. And what this mortal, corruptible body is coming under is the attack of sin. And sin wants to take its desires and its passions and wants to use those in a perverted way to make us obey. Sin is not satisfied just to remain. Sin wants to reign. Folks, sin is insatiable. Do you know that? Sin is a glutton. Sin is never satisfied to sit over there in the corner and say, well, I got my little one square foot of your life, and I'm just going to be comfortable with that. No, sin is always trying to reach up and grab the reins of your mortal body through your passions and desires, your instincts, those things that God put in you that are not wrong, that are not bad, but sin wants to take them and twist and pervert them. And here's what sin wants to do with them. He wants to use them as a beachhead through which he can attack the honor of God Sin is not satisfied to remain. It wants to reign. Clearly, that is what Paul is telling us. He's saying, don't let it do that. Is it possible? It must be possible because he is warning us against it. Let me give you one biblical example in living color that most of you, I'm sure, will remember and maybe resonate with. We call King David a man after what? This is the great worshiper of history. This is the man who wrote the Psalms and gave expression to the words of our own heart, pouring them out in beautiful sonnets to the Lord as he cried out and sang out his prayers and his songs of worship. Here's the man that God says 
is a man after my own heart. And yet, this man after the heart of God, he's on the roof of the palace and he looks down with his mortal eyes and he sees the beautiful form of a bathing beauty. And he thinks with his mortal mind as the cravings of his flesh, the instincts of his human manly flesh, not wrong, but now being perverted by the desires of sin to take what he doesn't have and to pervert sex into something unrighteous and wicked and his mind plotted it out and his voice of authority as sovereign king gave the command and he took her and his body, the instruments of his body were used to participate in that and then to cover up his sin. He put the machines in of government in place and drafted the letter that was going to execute the husband of the woman he had impregnated. Let me ask you a question. Was David, was his mortal body being controlled by sin? Was sin reigning in that? There is no question that sin was reigning. That's why Paul is saying, believers don't let sin reign because that's what it always wants to do. But he's not only saying it's a possibility, he's saying you got to be ready for it because sin is after you and your Mortal passions, your instincts, your emotions, your imaginations, your desires, the cravings of your flesh, it's after them all the time. That's why Paul comes to Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He's been painting in Romans 7. We're going to be seeing this in weeks to come. But this incredible battle. I mean, I want to do the right, and I can't get it done. And I don't do the very things that I so long to do. He's talking about this battle that is raging between what is spirit and soul that is seated in the heavenly realms that is brand new wants to do, but his mortal body with these passions and desires now warped by sin want to do something else. And he comes to Romans 7, 24, and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this what? From this body of death, there it is again, the mortal body. The mortal body. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 and 7, the same writer, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as when beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Some of the translators render that as I beat my body. You see, Paul knows all about this Mortal body, this beachhead through which sin wants to rule. And Paul is saying, you need to understand that sin remains number one, but also 
Sin wants to reign, and it's going to be relentlessly trying to do that. That brings us to the third truth here. And the third truth is this. Under the so what, what does this mean? The third truth is this. Sin does not need to reign in the believer's mortal mind. It remains, and it has the potential to reign, but that does not have to happen. One implication clearly drawn from this, Paul is telling you not to allow sin to do that. He's not telling you to shoot for something that's impossible. He is telling you God has given you all that you need so that sin should not, must not reign in your mortal body or through your mortal body. It does not need to be your master. You can master it. Matter of fact, in the Greek, the way that these words are written, I want to make sure I clarify this. I'm not saying that you can get to a point where you fully in this world, in this life, with this mortal body, ever fully and completely eradicate sin. Because the first point that we were making is that the mortality and corruption are connected. That's going to always be the reality. So you're not going to get to a point where you're going to fully eradicate sin permanently. But neither do you need to roll over and play dead and say, I can't do anything about it. I have to let it both remain and reign. And what Paul is saying here is, yes, it's going to remain, but it should not. It must not reign. In fact, folks, what has been his whole argument? Romans chapter 6, verse 1 the whole section, he is building an argument against those who are misusing the truth of the free grace of the gospel to say, man, if grace wins, let's go out and sin all the more. And the whole point Paul is building here is he is saying, that must not happen. It should never happen in the believer's life because you have been given what you need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. God has not held anything back from you. Sin does not need to reign. I'm out of time. Let me, let me try to just quickly give you some, now what? What must I do? What must we do as believers? I'm going to give you kind of three headings here ra really rapidly. Here's the first thing that you need to do to be living toward a growing sanctification or a growing holiness. You need to, first of all, listen, this is always the first truth. I've said this before, this is always the first truth. You need to think rightly. That's the first step. That's why he took five and a half chapters of doctrine so that he could come to the application. you got to think rightly. 
you got to think rightly about who you are. And you have to think rightly about what sin is. Let me explain that. I won't go into detail about who you are because we've been talking and talking about it. Who you are, if you are in Christ, is that you are seated in the heavenly realms. You have died to sin. You have been resurrected into a brand new existence. You're never going back to the old existence. That's who you are, and you need to keep that in front of you. You need to think rightly so that every day when you get up to go to the battle against sin in your mortal body, you can say, that's happening in my mortal body, but I've been given power by God to live above that, so I'm going to approach this militantly, and I'm not going to just turn over and play dead and let sin have its way. But secondly... You not only need to understand who you are, you need to understand what sin is. Look at it again. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do you know what that word instruments means? Most of the time that it is used in the context here, it seems clearly to indicate this. It is talking about armor or weapons. It's used in a military fashion. It's talking about armor or weapons. So let's play that out on both the positive and the negative side, the positive side first, and that is this. Your members, your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your voice, your mind, your imagination, your emotions, they can be used as instruments, as weapons for God in His campaign to expand his kingdom and ransack the enemy's ground and ransack hell and populate heaven. God wants you to present yourselves to be used in that way. But the warning on the negative side is that Paul is saying your instruments can also, your weapons can also be given to the enemy, can be presented to him, can be, here enemy, here is my mind, here is my voice, here is my hands. Use them in your battle to rebel against God. That is what we are doing when we are rolling over and giving way to allowing sin to continually perpetuate in our lives. You know, the literal translation in the, in the verbiage here, in the verbs on how this should be read is this. Do not let sin keep on having its control so that you keep on obeying. Do not keep on presenting the members. It's talking about habitual, repetitive sin. It's not saying that you're never going to do that, but it's saying that you should not be caught in the habit of habitual, repetitive sin, turning back to the same vomit over and over again, that when you do that, you are giving those instruments to God, as I mean to the enemy, as weapons to use against God, to actually shoot against the very honor of the holy God and His holy Son. So think right, and then secondly, be alert. Be alert. Every day, be alert. 
clearly. That's what Paul, using this military language, using the stakes, the high stakes that he's talking about, he's telling you, give your all to this thing. Give your all to the process of growth. It hit me as preaching first service, this reality. You don't get any vacations as a believer. You don't just get to get up today and say, I'm just not on it today. I'm taking the day off. This next week, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not doing the battle this week. Boy, that's what sin is just waiting for you to do. Look, you got a vacation coming. You got a real vacation coming. The kind of vacation that doesn't follow you home and you have to pay for it for the rest of the year. You got a vacation that is forever. You got one that's beyond your wildest imaginations. You have one that will never end, and this is just like the twinkling of an eye. Your vacation is coming, but until that day, you don't get one. You get up every day to the battle, so be alert. Be alert. And then number three, in order to... Pursue growth, sanctification, holiness. You got to do it with the right motives. And I'm not going to take the time to kind of unpack this. Maybe we'll come back to it next time. But you need to do it with the right motives. The right primary first motives. Let me tell you what is not the primary first motive for your holiness. And it's not this. Oh, God, I am getting so sick of getting beat up by sin. I'm just under the pain and dragging this thing out and, oh, man, give me some relief. That's not God's intended number one motive for your holiness because that's all about you. It's all about self. God says be holy for what? I am holy. Be you holy. Because I am holy. It is related to God's holiness. God is to be the primary motive and reason. We are to see that when we live in perpetual sin, we are actually being used as an instrument, a tool, a weapon in the hands of the enemy to shoot and defame the very honor of God. That's what's at stake, not our comfort, not our pleasure, but God's glory. That's the highest, that's the best motive. So sin still remains. Sin wants to reign, but sin doesn't need to reign. Because God has given you all that you need in Christ. Would you please stand? I just want to pray a prayer over you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just saying, I, I've been letting sin reign as a believer and I'm tired of it.
I'm just tired of it. God's still calling you to a commitment. He's going to do, do the initial work, but he wants you to go with him. He wants you to work out what he's working in. Secondly, if you're, a, if you're here this morning and never accepted Christ, I, Christ is being offered to you today freely. That's how he's always offered. He died for you, paid your penalty, and wants, you to, wants to unite you to himself. Take you out of that relationship of condemnation under Adam that you have and put you under the Lord Jesus Christ. Hide you in him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just, uh, I already said too much. I just need to be quiet here and just leave it in your hands. Have your way, Lord. I do want to say this, Lord, forgive me. God, forgive me. The times, even recently, where I have allowed sin to reign. I'm so aware of that right now. And I am really sorry. And I ask you. Forgive me for. Giving weapons to the enemy. To incite the very honor of the holy God. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray.